So Jane Jacobs, she's a, one of the, I guess, best-known urbanists of the 20th century. She was originally a journalist. She lived in New York in, in downtown Manhattan during the late 1950s and early 1960s. Um, and this was during a time that Manhattan was going, undergoing major redevelopment. This is Sarah Barnes, research fellow at the Institute for Culture and Society at Western Sydney University. Sarah studied Jane Jacobs for her PhD because Jane's experience from the 1950s and 60s, well, it's pretty relevant to what's happening in cities around the globe today. So Jane is up against this guy, Robert Moses, who is one of the most polarising figures in the history of urban planning in the United States. Robert really likes highways. And he had this plan to kind of basically remake Manhattan through large-scale expressways. And Jane didn't. She manages to fend off a couple of Robert's highways and starts this whole movement recognising the importance of inner-city communities. So she's someone who um, talked about the principle of eyes on the street, which is about having lots of people around to promote public safety. And if we just have these kind of windswept large office blocks that no one wants to hang around, then that, they can create unsafe spaces. The spaces Jane protected are now Soho and Little Italy, iconic American neighbourhoods. So what does a 1950s activist have to do with the changing face of cities today? But I like to use her ideas when I'm thinking about the future of digital cities because she introduced this idea of the sidewalk ballet, which is really about the kind of complex choreography that happens in cities that make them places we love to be in. Cities are a free performance. No matter where you are, you can sit back and watch hundreds of stories play out in a short amount of time. And you can have unexpected experiences in a city by getting lost or striking up a conversation you otherwise never would have had. There's a lot of interaction that is spontaneous, that is not planned. The best places of a city are those that are left alone from, from planners. So it's this idea that human ingenuity and spontaneity needs to be, to be encouraged and not sort of overly determined, if you like. But with more data about how to get from A to B in the most efficient way and more cafes and attractions targeted to you and your interests, are our cities getting boring? This is Think Digital Futures. I'm Ellen Leibeter. And today, the future of our cities. The highly populated, dense, busy, urban playgrounds we know and love are about to experience the biggest shift since cities were created. How will cities look? How will we interact with the new physical space? Who is responsible for this transformation? And how do we finally turn our cities into something that's actually designed for humans? One day we're going to look back and shake our heads when we realise that the tiny little sidewalks were the bits where the people had to go and the big bits in the middle were for these machines that carried one person. I mean, it's so inefficient, it's going to be ridiculous. You've probably heard the term smart city before, and this is how the cities of the future are generally referred to. You know, when people talk about smart cities, quite often what they mean is there's Wi-Fi and there's a bunch of sensors embedded in things. This is Jess Scully. She's a councillor for the City of Sydney. And 
you know what, yeah, that's useful. But for me, the smart city and the digital layer over a city is all there to help achieve human goals and to create better connections and stronger connections between communities and between people. So a smart city is about embracing technology and data to gather information like never before. We can collect info on how people use public transport from electronic tickets. We can install sensors in bins to tell us when they're full. And we can use this information to inform policy decisions by government. But actually, the idea of a smart city isn't that new. Each iteration of cities has been smart. In fact, you're actually about to see Smart City 4.0. The first smart city was just doing the basic things, the kind of uh, making the streets straight and so forth. The second was the automobile. The third was the Internet. So the Internet allowed us to have smart signals and all this kind of stuff. Now, 4.0 is going beyond that. This is Professor Ed Blakely. And I'm with an organization called uh, Cities Leadership Institute. And our job is to help city leaders understand what the future is about and how they can prepare themselves for that. Previously, our cities were designed for manufacturing. You live near the factory or the port, and that was the heart of the city. Uh, The city of the past was serving manufacturing. The manufacturing era is over. So now we're designing the post-industrial city. As we move into the knowledge economy or thinking economy, our city has to reflect these vibrant spaces that inspire creativity and connection – So work is no longer the centre of our city. The factories and the docks are not the heart of the city. When I came here 30 years ago, we still had working docks right in the city. That's no longer the case. It also means the heart of the city is more of an exhibition space, museums, the arts, and so on. And the smart city will be a city in which incubates people's ideas so they can produce products. You would already know of digital nomads, the people who aren't shackled to an assembly line or an office desk and who get to work remotely. There was once a fear our cities would become ghost towns as everyone would end up working from home. But it's pretty well established that the best way to innovate is to be collaborative in person. But space means something important in another way. And that is where people can come together and harness their energies to create new products, goods, and services. So that's the current revolution we're in. And cities are trying to adapt themselves to that. So the work is changing, and our buildings and infrastructure are going to start reflecting that. The other thing that's going to start changing is the streets themselves. If driverless cars and public transport can be made more efficient through the use of data, well, you won't need your own car to get to A to B. You could rely on another form of transport. And when the smart cars come, what are we going to do with those big five and six lane freeways? Won't be needed. What are we going to do with those underground parking lots? Won't be needed. So we're going to have to start reimagining how we use all this space. Physically, smart cities are going to look different. But they're going to be a hell of a lot more efficient because of all this data that's being collected. Adam Beck is the executive director of the Smart Cities Council Australia New Zealand. We're literally swimming in data day to day. Government agencies, city agencies, we're collecting data all the time. The problem is sifting through this data and working out what's actually useful. There's, of course, then the issue of, well, you know, which data and what data and how do we then use that data? So that's why we then need to take the data we've gathered and we need to communicate it and get it to a central place or somewhere 
where we can then analyse it because data's good, but intelligence is better. What we're practically seeing is a lot of sensors in our cities that are able to transmit real-time information back to governments. In the past, by the time you got a big enough data set and analysed it enough to make a decision, a few years would have passed. You'd end up making decisions on old data. Now, sensors are able to give that information like that. And it's a big opportunity for saving money and investing money in the right places. Here's one example. In the United States at the moment, there's a company that is deploying internet-enabled park benches. And these park benches are able to pick up movements within a public place and space and in parks to tell us when people come into that park, how long they stay for, whether they've come to that park once that day, twice that day. It tells you how the park and how the space is being used. And what that enables, for example, the parks department to do, we're able to now confirm whether that was a good investment or not. You know, we've just spent $200,000 to try and make this park a better place, but are, pe- are more people actually using it? So this is the power of harnessing data and collecting it and turning it into an in- intelligence because it allows us to make better decisions and make better investments. What's really getting researchers excited is how we can use data to make our cities more sustainable. The City of Sydney is collecting data to make buildings more efficient as a way to reduce our carbon footprint. Councillor Jess Scully again. We know that um, there's a huge amount of, of inefficiency in our buildings. The built environment in terms of the cooling and heating of built environment, the way we use water, for example, the way we move things around, and not to mention how we build our buildings. Those are potentially, um, I've heard it calculated as being 30% of the carbon footprint on the planet comes from the built environment. So how do we use data to monitor and evaluate the efficiency and the performance of individual buildings, of your street, of your suburb? And then how do we add that human layer of analysis and sense-making and innovation to it to go, well, how can we interrupt those cycles? How can we do things differently? The Institute of Sustainable Futures, or ISF, at the University of Technology, Sydney, is also involved in making our cities more sustainable. ISF is currently rolling out a whole range of sensors across the city to track different touch points, air quality, temperature, all with the view of helping the environment. This is the sort of tech that's available now because it's cheap and small. And anyone can buy a sensor for their backyard and get involved. Stuart White is the director of ISF. We're wanting to encourage sensors to be put throughout the inner city in order to measure air quality, noise, temperature, all of the factors that impact on urban livability so that we can get a, an understanding in geographical terms, through, in literally through a website with GIS, of what the urban livability, the air quality and so on is in those regions. A similar scheme was rolled out in Amsterdam and Stuart likens the new age of city data collection to the start of the internet. It's a bit the same as if you'd asked the question prior to the development of the web and the internet, saying, well, what on earth use is that? What would ha- what, what's likely to be the useful, usefulness of that? We couldn't have predicted the outcome. And it's a bit the same with this. And so when Amsterdam put that uh, process in place, they could not anticipate some of the use cases that would come up. One particularly savvy entrepreneur recognised that there were boats in the canal that were sinking. Which are somewhat neglected. Their owners don't come and check them and so on. And occasionally they sink. (laughs) That's very expensive and very annoying for the waterways authorities and others. So they developed a small low-cost device which would measure the level of water. 
in the bottom of those boats in the canals, which would just send an alarm signal if it got over a certain level. Very simple, though that was a use case, which specific to Amsterdam, of course, but extremely useful. So how do you feel about the city mining your data and putting sensors on everything? Is it okay so long as it's for the greater good? It's something that has a few people concerned. Jess Scully again. The, in the informational city, so in the city where actually information and data is a resource, what is the obligation from the people who own and manage and create that data? What's the obligation back to those people who were, you know, digital labourers who worked and contributed their own behaviours and their own experiences to that process, whether consciously or not? You know, when I'm walking along and my phone is tracking me and feeding that back to an app and then that's telling people that there's traffic on that street, what rights do I have? Um, And what is the social justice outcome when it comes to saying, we've got this information, now we have to use it for the greatest possible good? That's the lens that I think we need to start applying to the smart city. But with all this data, how do we make sure our cities still allow for the things that make us human? That's coming up after the break. Just Just words. words. Finding the line between free speech and protecting the vulnerable. You can't say or do anything anymore. Otherwise you'll be dragged off to the law courts. Why is this the pressing issue of our time. Just Words is an original 2SER series. This new podcast goes beyond the hype and headlines of our race discrimination laws and gets the true stories from those that have used 18C of the Racial Discrimination Act and those that have had it used against them. New episodes will be released every Monday, starting from February 27. To listen, just head to iTunes or your favourite podcast app and search for Just Words. Subscribe today. While lots of things can be captured um, through um, the kinds of data that's now being generated in our environments, not everything can. And in fact, the way that we use data and the way that we generate knowledge through um, urban data is actually a very particular and even constrained way of knowing our cities. This is Sarah Barnes again, who you heard from at the top of the show. You know, a lot of the direction that the tools and devices that we're using are taking us in is towards a much more planned and guided kind of way of interaction with our spaces. So I'm thinking here of something like, you know, Google Maps or SatNav devices and so forth, where you can really just basically play your device, you'll get your guided navigation, and you don't really have to think very much about what you need to do. I think there's great benefits in that. I love using Google Maps, but of course, we have to be conscious of what we're losing. We do lose the the kind of serendipity that might come from getting lost. And this issue is something that's got a lot of people pressing pause on those tech-savvy cities. And that is um, a fuzzy area, but obviously so, because human human beings are not as predictable as, as a computer, as an algorithm. This is Marcus Foote, Director of QUT Design Lab at the Queensland University of Technology. You have people in academia, in community groups, in the spaces that are looking at the city and studying the city and have been studying the city for a very long time saying, hang on a minute, a city is not a computer and a city is not a business. A city is about much more than that. It's about the people coming together. It's about a colleague in the UK of mine calls it the diversity dividends, the the fact that we are coming together in a confined 
space, not just for, for random reasons, but because we actually are able to take advantage of the, the difference and the diversity that that, that agglomeration of people offers. If we go back to the image of the city and the sidewalk ballet, our actions can't or rather shouldn't be reduced to data points. We are inherently random beings and cities allow us to embrace this randomness and spontaneity. It's what makes life exciting, right? And that's why there's such a push to have innovation spaces within cities. But for Marcus, it's more than innovation and work. It's about human interaction and challenging our beliefs. He's worried that the same sort of filter bubbles we're currently seeing online are bleeding into our physical spaces. If we continue to use these kinds of systems that are optimised for like-mindedness, for recommender systems that, for instance, send you to your favourite coffee shop or the favourite coffee shop of your, of your friends, and this is then a trend that goes through commercial transactions, social transactions, cultural kinds of transactions, we're actually creating this, this city that is sorted by software. So we, we actually, in a way, prevent the diversity dividend of the city to come to fruition. And Marcus has been involved in work that may seem a bit strange for your efficiency-driven mind. Some of the research that we are currently working on is to try and encounter that tendency, that we also look at how you can design a smart city, for instance, for for getting lost. And that might sound um, counterintuitive, but there's actually something around, for instance, journey planners that are always optimised for for either speed or distance um, to you know, get you to, from A to B in the fastest possible way or the shortest possible route, that we also have the option for people to decide, I got spare time, I want to take the scenic way or I want to take the least polluted way, I want to take the green way home, I want to optimise my chances of bumping into someone that I'm friends with or that I um, haven't met yet. Um, so cities have always been working as serendipity engine and it's that kind of serendipity the kind of sagacious discovery of difference i call it um, which is uh, crucial in in this quest to create truly smart cities that bring people together to drive this serendipity engine we have to think of designing cities not just from the bird's eye view with all the data and efficient transport and bins and what have you but from the pedestrian or sidewalk view as well so whilst we do want efficiency on the kind of bird's eye view, helicopter kind of level. We, we want the level of, um, of choice, of diversity and uh, being exposed to difference in the city when it comes more to the pedestrian view. And so reconciling the kind of bird's eye perspective with the pedestrian perspective is really the, um, the kind of crucial challenge right now in that smart city space. And it's something urban planner Ed Blakely agrees with. When it comes to actually designing a city for humans, we've got our work cut out for us. All the, the urban planners are now talking about designing human cities, and it's all talk. We really don't know very much about it. My fear is, <clears throat> excuse me, that we're going to come up with a formula that will work for a minute, and then it'll break down. Let me give the best example of that. 10, 15, 20 years ago, we thought if we had a shopping center to anchor our downtowns, then the downtown would survive. What's happened in Australia? Every place we put a shopping center, the town around it has died. That was a great engineering solution and politically a good solution, but it killed communities. To avoid this, Ed says we've got to get engineers and designers and the government stepping back and letting the community work out what they want. People should not let the government build the city. They should get involved themselves. As the saying goes, Rome wasn't built in a day and it's going to take a lot of time to build new cities that are reflective of the digital age. 
One thing's for sure, though, cities are here to stay, and they're probably the best way to address some of the big social challenges we face. Stuart White again. Uh, In the last 10 years, we've moved to the point now where over 50% of people live in cities, and that's going to move to probably more like 70% by the year 2030. So that is the trend. And there are huge advantages of cities in terms of uh, the the social advantages, the creative, uh, the innovation. So it's not like, A, cities aren't going away. Mathematically, it would be impossible. If you spread people over the surface of the planet, you would have a much bigger environmental problem. And we know that cities can be and are efficient. I mean, New York City is one of the, you know, ironically, one of the more efficient cities. And, of course, European cities even more so, uh, despite the weather. (laughs) So um, uh, it is possible, uh, and you can get greater efficiencies through urban consolidation. And that doesn't necessarily mean, you know, 50-storey towers. I mean, that's not everyone's cup of tea. Uh, But uh, to have medium to high density designed well, done well, and Uh, done in a sustainable way, it is possible to do that and uh, we're probably going to need to do that to some extent. You've been listening to Think Digital Futures, a show produced by 2SER in conjunction with the University of Technology, Sydney. You can find out more at 2ser.com forward slash thinkdigitalfutures. I'm Ellen Liebeter. Bye for now.